Welcome to Impact AI, brought to you by Pixel Scientia Labs. I'm your host, Heather Couture. On this podcast, I interview innovators and entrepreneurs about building a mission-driven, machine-learning-powered company. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to my newsletter to be notified about new episodes. Plus, follow the latest research in computer vision for people in planetary health. You can sign up at pixelscientia.com newsletter. Today, I'm joined by guest Ava Van Rickort, CEO and founder of Therona, to talk about advancing treatments for lung diseases. Ava, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ava, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Therona? Yeah. So actually, my background started uh, around 20 years ago when I started studying AI. And I studied AI in a time when, at least in the Netherlands, you were studying that with eight people, where now it's, of course, a very popular subject. And after studying, I became a scientist already in medical image analysis. So I started working as a scientist on lung imaging, CT imaging of the lungs, 3D images, and analyzing these to detect any diseases. And although I really like science, what I missed in science a lot is translation. So translation from actually the applied science I was doing to any patient. So I moved to the US, actually to UCLA after my PhD in the Netherlands. And there, while I was actually a postdoc, I very quickly started working for a spin-off that was doing medical image analysis in lungs for pharmaceutical companies. And then using all the knowledge I had to help these companies run their clinical trials and on the CT scans determine, hey, what is the drug I'm developing actually doing? Because you can't take out the lung to just look what's happening. You can only like do a, a test how much air you can blow out, for example. So with this imaging, it would really help them determine what is structurally changing in the lung when I give a certain medication or what's actually the mechanism of action of the medication. So I did that for, for a few years, but I moved back to the Netherlands after that, went back to science and to lead a group again on medical image analysis in lungs. I loved it, but I again, I missed the translation. And then in this whole process of moving from a company back to academia, but still having the network, what I started doing is in my evenings, using everything that we developed in science to help still people in my network well, determine the same things. What is actually happening with my patients? That all accumulated to a point where I said, hey, there are so many people interested in what we do in science, but we're not translating it. So let's start a company that actually translates everything that's possible in medical image analysis for lungs into, in the end, patient care and make an impact there. Long story, but... <laughs> so what does Therona do and why is this important for treating disease? Yeah, so Therona develops medical image analysis software, which is all based well, nowadays on deep learning, machine learning. And this software helps to determine which anatomy is on the scan, how abnormal is it, what kind of disease does the patient have. And we actually do that in a slightly different setting than most other AI companies. So we don't make software that's aimed at radiology, even though medical image analysis is very much a radiology thing. But we really focus on breakthrough treatments that are of course, being developed both by pharma companies, but also by biotech companies where with a bronchoscope in the lungs, you can locally treat diseases. We really focus on how do you personalize imaging? So how do you make AI that helps determine which treatment will work for which patient? Because what we see in the world is that in lung diseases, all new treatments that are being developed, it's not just one pill and it works for everyone. You want to administer something locally where you have the disease, not to harm the healthy parts of the lung, and you want to really determine for each specific patient, where is this location? Do you have this specific disease? 
that we're looking for and how do I dose the treatment. So we're really focusing on enabling all the new treatments that are being developed to actually select the right patient and, and be able to, to come to the clinic. So that's the, the real impact we are making is yeah, being an innovator in the treatment space. Sounds like using machine learning in, in multiple ways for different types of models to predict different types of outputs. Is that accurate? Yeah, it has a, a similar core, but indeed, so if you look at our what, what we actually developed, first we have our basic system that can take a CT scan, so a 3D image of the lungs, determines where the lungs, where your airways, your vasculature, you know, what do you as a person look like? And then based on that, indeed, we have models that can help navigate through a disease, but also determine the severity of a disease, determine the staging of a disease or the follow-up after you've been treated, what happened to your lung. So yeah, we have different models for different types of questions that our partners or the doctors have. What kinds of challenges do you encounter in working with CT images? So on the one hand, medical imaging is a lot easier than real-world imaging because you always know what's in front of you. You're not determining if it's a tree or a bird, you know it's lungs. But at the same time, if you look at well CT scans, there's a lot of variety. So it's different scanners, but within the scanners, you have like 20,000 different settings, if you will. And then there's the patient. Yeah, some patients are larger than others. That influences the amount of noise. So you're really dealing with that things can look tremendously different on different scans from the same patient. So if you scan the same patient twice on the same day on two different machines or with two different settings of one machine, you can, yeah, if you don't take care of that in your models, get completely different answers about, for example, how much disease do they have. So it's the friability. And in combination with it, you're often looking for very small responses. If you're looking at the drug and are you responding to the drug, you're looking for very small differences, then noise and variability in your scans is really harming your ability to do so. So I think that's the the biggest challenge you always have with CT scans. How do you deal with those types of variations? Is it more through data cleaning and larger and more diverse data sets, or is it more on the algorithmic side? It's, of course, a combination. So yeah, of course, first thing is that you try to fix it at the source. So if you if we put things out there or put things out in clinics even, of course, we try to advise people to be as consistent as possible in the scanning. But you also realize in the real world, this is not always possible. So we start at the source. Then we come to our models and we say we are going to train them with the widest variety we can think of, the widest variety we have in hand to make sure we are robust. And in addition, we also have made models that before analyzing a scan, we try to normalize the scans so that they're always all in the same well space. Let's say they always look similar. They have been taken with different machines with different settings, but we all first convert them to look like one setting before analyzing. That works. But of course, by altering a scan, you might alter your signal. So we try to fix it at the source and by training with a variety of images, but we also have methods to correct it if it's needed. Do you ever have to handle disagreements in annotations? You know, for, for example, if clinicians disagree on the exact subset of a disease a patient has, or maybe other ways that your annotations or labels might not be totally reliable? <laughs> yes, I think that is a very common theme. I mean, there are things that are very obvious, but there are things indeed that if you ask three humans, you get three different answers. And I think that's, that is difficult because you have to decide indeed what is your AI going to do. On the other hand, I think it also is one of the strengths of AI, right? Of course, you have to make the right decisions that what you make is reliable. But then once you've made it, it will always give you the same answer, no matter if it's 8 in the morning or 2 a.m. at night. It's always the same. So it's one of the strengths that at least, for example, what we do is a lot of 
clinical trial. So it's also very important that if you measure a signal, you measure it consistently in the same way so you can measure the difference of a treatment. So it's also a weakness of humans and a strength of AI. And then the dealing with variation in inputs, we sometimes also turn it around. So yes, first you ask three or four or five humans to annotate something and you see a large variation. So you're a bit, hmm, what do I do? But if we turn it around, make a system based on, for example, the average of the humans or whatever we come up with, and then show all these humans the output of the system and ask them if it's correct, you very often get a yes. So it's also, if you ask the same person three times to annotate, they will also give three different answers very often. They leave enough time in between so they don't remember. It's not that they think something else is wrong. It's just that it's uh, it's not the black or white. Yeah. <laughs> It's a difficult problem in itself. Yeah, it's subjective and yeah, it's, you have to deal with that human variation, yeah. even from experts. Yeah, yeah, it's it's and that indeed in medical imaging, you encounter that a lot. So AI is also helping to, to standardize things more. How does the regulatory process affect the way you develop machine learning models? In the basis, not so much. Uh, maybe it's because we've been doing it for quite a while already, but we are able to develop what, how we want and then get that regulatory cleared. I think what is really, it's really stopping us from, for example, doing online live learning, which technically is possible. Technically we can do it. So we, but we don't do that because it's, it, we don't know how to clear the fact that we are constantly learning because you're clearing a model with certain performance measures that's been validated, very verified and cleared. And if we then start updating the model, we can't get that cleared. We don't manage to do that at the moment. So it is, we are maybe much more working in cycles than and if you look technically at AI, we could be learning every single day from what we do. <laughs> I mean, we as persons do, but our AI models learn in release cycles instead of on a daily basis. So that, that is a difference. And I, I don't know how important that is, but it's one of the cooler things of AI that you can learn on the spot. And that, that we don't do because of regulatory clearance. Do you think that online learning components is important to the, the future of AI applications for medical purposes? You know, the regulatory process doesn't work with that type of setup right now, but do you think it's important for the future? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, so in the field we are in, I think it's it could be important. But what I could imagine is that you can then also, there are, of course, things that happen very sporadically. And then if something is live and something like that happens and, and the AI has it wrong the first time, this would be normal. Which is correct, it then immediately can take in that knowledge. You're building like a live knowledge base and not, for example, forgetting this one case, let's say. Yeah? So I could imagine that there is a space, especially in more rare diseases, or that it's that it's that yeah, it's nice. And what I do think, and I think it will happen, I think it's also the regulatory space moves relatively fast in some ways, most not, but some, is that you have these federated learning approaches that of course more and more popular and then yeah, there is also online learning. So at some point, you start to be able to learn from data without using the actual data. So the privacy is not at risk. And then we start to be able to prove that somehow validation is also in those systems that you're not harming the system because that's what it's all about. Are we not making it worse? So I think it will, it will, it will be there and it will be important in some areas. Yeah. And, and, and what maybe also helps a lot is if you have this kind of AI. Of course, if you train it on 10,000 types of scans and then there's a hospital that has just that one type of scans you haven't trained on, it could be live trained relatively quickly to also work on these scans. Then you don't have to go back to the manufacturer and you know do a new release. 
it's just learning online very quickly for these type of scans. So in that sense, it would be a game changer for that variation, maybe. Yeah, I guess with, with the current setup with regulations that you're expected to anticipate that different scanner, different variations up front and yeah. make use of that when you collect your training data, when you validate all, all of that. Yeah, and we have no, when they update the scanner, they could introduce new settings Yeah, that you haven't trained on because they didn't exist yet. So I could imagine that that those kind of things in a live online learning setting could be tackled faster because otherwise you have to do a new release and collect data. And collecting data is, of course, more difficult than if hospitals without actually sharing the data could update the models. So it, I think there's there are good use cases to do that. And I also believe it will happen it, uh, with also all the federated learning that's coming up. It's actually already there, but I don't know how clinically used it is. Yeah, it, it will happen. How do you ensure that the technology your team develops will fit in with the clinical workflow and provide the right kind of assistance to doctors and patients and researchers? Yeah, I think that's a good and very important part. What we do, so we have a large network, A, of key opinion leaders, who, of course, help us every time we make something new. How does it fit in the workflow in the clinic? And next to that, well, we are also very much focused on our partners. So, yes, we have clinical integrations, but also a lot of partnerships where we make clinical decision-making software for certain treatments. So there we really develop the output and the way you input together with the doctors that are going to use it. So it's very often a back and forth that can take a few months. We make something, we test it, something is right, something is wrong, we update it just as long until the point that they are, they know how to use it and they are happy that it fits their workflow. So it's really, funnily enough, it might take an equal amount of time as making the models. It's, it's really, otherwise, if they can't use it, it could be the best model in the world, but yeah, the people who have to use it don't know how. So it's really an iterative process and constant contact with physicians, actually. Yeah, that's it's really important to have that that constant feedback and that that iteration as you speak of. Yeah. So one of the large challenges in AI companies right now is hiring for machine learning because this type of skill set is is very high demand. What approaches to recruiting and onboarding have been most successful for your team? Yeah, I think it's interesting for us actually hiring deep learning engineers who are in our company the people who make the models. So actually the the machine learning part that has not been difficult. I think, yeah, a, we're in a location where a lot of these people are actually in education, but also the, the impact-driven nature of the company attracts a lot of people. But we do have in like our pure software development. So we have the part where we make the AI models and then actually about the integration with the clinicians and how do you present it. There we, that's for us, it's not deep learning engineers, but it's more software engineering. That's a very difficult part for us to recruit. I don't know why. Well, I do know that they are, of course, eh? In, in many companies, in all fields, they need software engineers. So in that sense, uh, it's the market. And maybe the impact that we make has less of an influence because they're a little bit further from it. But there, yeah, recruiting is, I think that the, I don't know the answer. If anyone does, be happy to hear. Yeah, we recruit worldwide. We, we, we have, I think we are currently with 15 nationalities because we keep recruiting. It doesn't matter where people are, we recruit them. But it is very different. I don't know the answer. It, nothing is really successful in that field. We just are, we keep searching. We do it ourselves. We use recruiters. We go to fairs to attract people. And it's, it, juniors are okay-ish to find, but seniors with experience for us, it's, it's very, very difficult. Honestly, I don't know the answer. That's interesting that you find that distinction between deep learning engineers and software engineers, because in most companies I've talked to, it's, it's a 
machine learning component that's most challenging to find. But data engineers can be hard, difficult for recruiting as well. I have the feeling about it's our location and we're next to a large university with a large AI component. So that is nice if we, if we want juniors. And, and yeah, somehow I think the, the impact drivenness makes it a little bit easier. But it could also be a purely our location. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see the local university component being important there. And perhaps the students coming out of there are aware of your company while they were in school. And so it's yeah, just makes sense to look locally when they're looking for a full-time position. Yeah. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI-powered startups? <laughs> yes. Well, of course, there are many fields of advice. But I think anyway, if you're leading in any company, but also an AI company, it's, it's maybe go with your gut. It's a tough field, right? Because it's a field in which you have... Of course, you have to make technology that's very innovative, but you also have a market that is still getting used to the innovation. So it's not a market that's already there. You're not selling printers. You're really at this next to making something that's highly innovative. You're also opening a market to this innovation. So it's a twofold thing. So I think what, what has helped me a lot is a, indeed, yeah, do something that you really like it. And it doesn't matter that it takes so much time, but also don't be afraid to ask anyone for help. So for example, key opinion leaders, doctors, they are very, very happy to help. They really love the, the innovations in their field. They won't maybe help you by themselves because they don't know they can help you. But if, I've never had that I asked anyone for any help. And they said no. They always say yes and then start offering more and more help and advising. And so I think that for me is a big learn from having a company like this is that don't be afraid to ask for help of the people in the field because they really want to help you there. And if you don't ask for help, you're really lost in getting into hospitals and getting all the contacts you need. And finally, where do you see the impact of Theorona in three to five years? <laughs> World domination. Now, what I see, because we are in the lung image analysis space, but that really centered around the treatments. And if you look at the, the lung treatment world, we're really starting, of course, to focus around lung cancer screening, but also the follow-up of that in the clinics, the localized treatments. And I believe that around that, AI will really take care of the personalized medicine part of that. So you really, it's not a one-size-fits-all treatment, never. So you really, and, and a human can't do this. A human, well, next to, they, they can't take eight hours to annotate the scan. They also can't see a difference of one milli millimeter or follow an airway and, and vasculature all the way out to the periphery of the lung and then know where to go. So I really think the impact of Tirona will be the personalized medicine, the personalized treatment of early stage lung cancers or any other lung disease that needs localized treatment. This is great. Ava, your team at Theorona is doing some really interesting work for medical image analysis. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? <laughs> so of course, we have our own website, theorona.eu, so we're in the EU. <laughs> and our LinkedIn channel is always, yeah, always the latest news is on there. So that's also a, a nice source of information. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI. Thank you for listening to Impact AI. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you'd like to learn more about computer vision applications for people and planetary health, you can sign up for my newsletter at pixelscientia.com newsletter.